0: Well, Epiphany is, is one of those celebrations that sometimes can kind of come and go without much recognition. We're familiar enough with the, the passage or the story. We sing songs like We Three Kings that are based as much on tradition as it is uh, biblically because we don't know, for instance, how many magi there were. Um, and the idea of them being kings of regions is is something kind of added on uh, through history and through tradition. We know that there were three gifts, but we don't know how many there were that traveled. And so there's a lot that kind of gets mixed up uh, in this story and to the extent that, as I mentioned in previous passages, sometimes we hear and we perceive things as much due to our expectations as to what's actually there in scripture before us. So I've entitled this morning's message, You Get What You Came For, or something along those lines. This idea that um, we have several players in this story of, of the epiphany and, and seeking out the child Jesus, and they're all coming with different motivations. But I want to start with, with another question, rather than what have you come for, um, because that, that's a pretty loaded question. Um, I'll start out with another loaded question. How far will you go? How far will you go? Now, a few years back, um, actually more, more than I care to admit, there was a, a popular movie, I know my wife saw it with a friend of hers, and there was a, in this movie, there was a song that was featured by a group called The Proclaimers which I believe were from from Down Under. And they, I bet if I start singing this song, you'll you'll have heard it enough to kind of know where it's going. The chorus was, I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more just to be the man who walked a thousand miles to fall down at your door. And then, da 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 they got away with like half the song just being a syllable da so hey if you can get away with it and make a hit record by doing that i would say go for it i would walk 500 and i think the reason that it was a popular song it it was it was attached to a movie that was kind of quirky and had a had a, a romantic angle uh, to it as well it was Benny and June i believe was the name of the the movie um but we, we like that romantic idea of going to great lengths to express love to some, someone else. Right? And here, here we have in this song this romantic idea that I'd, I'd walk 500 miles and then I'd walk 500 more just so I could fall down at your feet and you'd know how much I cared about you. And in this scripture, we have the Magi from the East that... Uh, some have estimated they, they came about 800 miles, so not 500 plus 500, so, uh, but they, they came 800 miles, and then when they find the child Jesus, they, they fall at his feet and worship him. Sometimes I wonder uh, to, to what extent my devotion leads me to, to make sacrifices, so that's one of the questions Today, Because we get the story of the Magi that traveled hundreds of miles to worship the newborn king of the Jews, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But we also have characters in the story that, that couldn't be bothered to go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, which is six miles. You could, you could walk that in an afternoon. And if you're the king, you don't actually have to do the walking yourself. You probably have somebody carry you in a litter or ride a chariot or, or whatever your preferred means of transportation might be. But they can't be bothered to go the six miles to, to investigate this most important historical event, God breaking into human history and the child Jesus. So why is that? Why is that? And that is, um, that's kind of the crux of this idea of we get, we get what we come for and our, our motivations do affect not only what we seek out, but what we receive once we get there. So the first question I think that helps me introspectively kind of think about what are my motivations? What what am I coming for? Would be, where is my gaze? Where is my gaze? Am, Am I watchful or am I wary? And those two things can look the same, but I know in my heart that they're very different. If I'm watchful, then I take on kind of the attitude of the magi, seeing the signs of the time, being prayerful, investigating scripture, expectant. That's the attitude of the the magi. Now... I don't know how many of you saw or attempted to see the Bethlehem star, the convergence of the planets back in December. Did anybody wander outside around December 20th, 21st? I, I did. How many of you were a little underwhelmed? I was a little underwhelmed. I, 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 I was expecting, you know, again, what we see and what we perceive are, are shaped by a whole lot of things other than just Scripture, you know, so when, we get the, when we get the holiday cards that have the wise men traveling on their camels and there's Beth, you know, Bethlehem kind of set up like a little hallmark village and, and there's a huge star with like a beam of light down. on. This is the house, right? This is where to go. And, and so all these things are playing in our imaginations and I'm wandering outside with my father-in-law and, and my daughter because I got them excited. Kim wasn't. Wasn't really on board with that. I was like, come on, we got to go outside. We got to see this, right? Star of Bethlehem, you know, Jupiter and Saturn. And and I got out there and I was like, well, yeah, they're really close together, but I thought they would be more overlapping and they'd be brighter. And I was just underwhelmed. But that got me, you know, the Internet is a wonderful thing. You can just follow down all sorts of rabbit trails. So I'm looking up. YouTube videos about about, the original star of Bethlehem and what it might have been and convergence of of stars and planets. And as far as I could tell from my research, the, the best explanation of a natural phenomenon that might have caused the star of Bethlehem would be something like this convergence of planets, which in some ways makes a lot more sense to me as to why we read in scripture that the wise men saw it at a certain point that started their journey of hundreds and hundreds of miles. And then they get to Jerusalem and everybody there is kind of clueless, right? They're like, what are you you talking about? Well, we saw his star in the east or we saw his sign in the heavens, right? literally a star could be the convergence of planets. And just like this last December, with the, with the convergence of Jupiter and Saturn, you, you could have missed it, right? Even if you were outside and somebody said, no, it's that, that's it over there, that's the sign. You might have gone, eh? But these were, these were wise men from the East that were, it was part of their religious observance to observe the heavens and to try to interpret the signs that they saw in the heavens. And that's not all, um, it's not all astrology or something that's negative because they were kind of viewed as proto scientists, as astronomers, and we even get in passages in Job about how the Lord you know, named the constellations and is, and is displaying forth his wonders every day and that even, even creation in the stars can, can speak to us as his people as a general revelation never to supplant scripture, certainly, or the incarnate word of God in Jesus Christ, but but that we can see signs in the heavens and they they might be something that lead us closer to God. Now, certainly, these individuals from the East, they saw something that indicated to them God was doing something significant. Um, Last thing I want to say of my research down the rabbit hole. Some have suggested that they came from Babylon and that they were actually descendants of the Jews from from the time some 600 years earlier when the Jewish people were sent to Babylon in exile. And we get the stories of Daniel and the wise men in the king's court. And they not only were steeped in Hebrew scripture, but also learned of the sciences of the people of that time in Babylon. And they were kind of the leading I don't know, kind of secular realm of of knowledge at that time. So being able to blend those two together and interpret what they saw in the sky as something that was significant to them and their religious tradition, uh, you know, Daniel for one, he never went back to the Holy Land. There were other people that came back and reestablished the nation, but but he and his descendants presumably did not. So. That's all speculation, right? And it's, it's a weak argument to make an argument from silence in scripture, but I just wanted to bring that up in, in terms of, that's a plausible explanation as to why the wise men could show up and say, hey, this great thing has happened and you've got Herod and all of Jerusalem going, what, what are you talking about, right? Because that, that part never made sense to me, that if it looked like the Hallmark card with the giant beam of light, that that would be kind of hard to miss, right? All right. So, for it to be a smaller sign like that, like we saw the convergence of Jupiter and Saturn, you would have to be watchful, right? And that's significant to me because in the in the Gospels and in Jesus' teaching, we get plenty of parables about we as God's people needing to be watchful, to understand the signs of the times, to be uh, to be thinking. Theologically and not just politically or socially. To be considering what is, what is God doing in all of this? And if we're watchful and we're expectant that God is active not only in our lives personally, but in our lives collectively, then, then that puts us in a different stance. That makes us individuals that, um, that are watchful. Now, like I said, it can, it can look a lot like its cousin being wary. Herod was wary, <laughs> being fearful of, of any change, of any disturbance in the status quo. Uh, Herod was not a good, we use a good leader in the sense that he was very effective, but he was effective in his ruthlessness. And some of you may be aware a little bit of his history and his reputation. Um, Caesar Augustus, the Caesar that, at that time, said it was, it was more advantageous to be a pig in Herod's household than it was to be his son. Because as an observant Jew, you wouldn't kill the pig to eat it, now bacon or pork chops or whatever. But if you were a son, he killed three of his sons, one of his wives, several of his in-laws. Anybody that he perceived as a threat would just um, kind of find themselves taken out. There was even, there's even a story about him Calling down the high priest, and in his palace, he had a he had the swimming pool, and and for some reason, I guess if the king and you're the high priest, and the king invites you for a dip in the pool, you go. But with Herod's uh, reputation, I don't know if I would have taken that swim with him. And and somehow, you know, through through swimming together, Herod found a way to push the high priest's head under water long enough that that uh, he didn't make it back up to the top. So. Herod had a way of dealing with those that he perceived as a threat because when he looked out, rather than being watchful, he was wary. And when we're wary, we're not only looking for threats, um, that we're we're coming at it from a standpoint of of kind of how is this going to affect me, right? And it can be a a selfish motivation or at least self-absorbed. Like I'm not, so, I'm not so concerned about the circumstances as much as how it's going to change my life, how it's going to affect me. And we can become distracted and unobservant because when your gaze is inward and you're wary, it's hard to be watchful in the way that's expectant for God to move. So where is our gaze this morning? Are we watchful or are we wary? Are we looking out with faith or are we concerned so much by what's going on around us that that we've turned inward? Now, another thing of note is that this is a story we get in Matthew's gospel that we don't get in Luke. And we talked about that difference a couple weeks ago, but I just want to reiterate. Remember, Matthew's audience was primarily... Jewish people, and he wants to convince them of the significance of Jesus as the Messiah. And so we get some echoes back to ancient Israel and uh, being in Egypt and coming out of Egypt, and if you'll recall, prior to all of the ten plagues, prior to um, anything going really bad for the Hebrew children in in Egypt that called that where where God called Moses to lead them out you have in Exodus 1 and 2 Pharaoh's getting nervous about this group of people that he's got down in the land of Goshen getting larger and larger and larger and larger right the Lord was blessing the nation of Israel in Egypt and the Pharaoh gets threatened he's looking at him he says hey if they get too large like they're they're going to be a threat, right? So he's looking at them warily rather than saying, oh, God is blessing this group of people. I wonder, I wonder how it is that they're being so blessed. No, he sees them as a threat. And so the pharaoh at that time, in Exodus 1 and 2, it explains that his solution is, do you remember? Throw all throw all the infants into the Nile, right? And that's why we get the story of Moses in the, in the bulrushes in the, in the basket that was tarred and, and sent down by his mother and then from, from there the rest of the story. So Matthew is trying to draw out these parallels, right? So it would make sense that he would mention this story because when the original Jewish hearers are hearing Herod, they would also be thinking back to, other aspects of their history as a people and thinking about Pharaoh and the slaughter of the innocent. Now we're not gonna get into the story of Herod sending uh, those to, to kill the, the babies in, in the surrounding area because that's not part of today's story, but that parallel, I just wanted to draw that out. So that's the first question, where is our gaze? And the second one is, what have we come for? What have we come for? Is it, is it to worship? or are we motivated by what we want? Is it worship, or are we motivated by what we want? Now, we're always gonna have a mixture of those two motivations in us. Because, in fact, God asks us to come with our wants. The key is, for me, is what takes priority? What's what's my focus on? Um, In fact, we get in scripture, such admonitions in, like in James four, two and three, you have not because you ask not, right? So that's God saying, hey, ask, ask me. If there's something you need, ask me for it. And Jesus later in Matthew's gospel, where he's teaching, uh, he's teaching about prayer and about coming to God, and he says, hey, if you uh, as, as evil people I don't know if I'd want to be referred to that way. As, but Jesus did that to his congregation. He said, if you as evil people and as parents understand what it is to give good things to your children when you ask for them, how much more so will God the Heavenly Father give you good things if you ask him? Right? So, so it's not that God isn't asking us to ask. It's that I know in my, in my own experience... I can get into a habit of of asking so much, especially if it's something I'm really fervent in prayer over, that that dominates. And then pretty much my prayer time just becomes my list of, God, here's the things that, that I want. Here's what you need to do for me in order for me to feel good about this relationship. That's hard, right? We understand that in other relationships. If you've got a friend that only calls you up or only invites you out to coffee when they have something they want you to, you to do for them or they have some need they want to share with you, but when it comes time to reciprocate a little bit and you start to share a little bit about, well, here's what's going on for me, and they kind of shut down, it doesn't feel good, right? Now, God's much bigger than that, right? That was the point Jesus was making. He's saying, if that's how we are in our relationships, how much more is God's grace bigger than all that, to want to give you good in spite of yourself. Um, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that, that God somehow gets frustrated with us just coming with our wants. But I think there's a part of say, saying, hey, this, this relationship could be about so much more than just a vending machine approach to, to this relationship, where, where if you, do, you feel like you do the right things, then I'll bless you. And no, like, I'll bless you anyway, Right? I want you to come when you have a legitimate need because that's part of this relationship. And every good thing comes from, from God. But let's not miss this aspect of worship. What is worship? Well, the Magi give us, give us a hint. They come at a great distance, a great expense to see this Messiah that's largely ignored or missed by his own people. They're clueless as to what's happening in their time and in their own backyard. They show their faith by what they do, their actions. Their worship is a a verb, right? It causes them to do something. Worship bows down, it's a posture. It's about, when I think about it, it's about submission and recognition. The Hebrew word for worship is the verb shachah. I think I'm saying that right. But it literally means to bow down. It, it, it's a posture verb, right? So um, we worship in all sorts of ways. We sit, we stand, we sing. But, but in Hebrew, if you, were, if you were thinking about worship, it was about falling down flat on your face. Now, if an important individual were to walk in this room, a celebrity or a politician, um, I know there's somebody in the back, back of the room that if, if the K-pop group BTS were to walk in right now, there would be a certain response. Um, if, if you think of somebody, you know, if, if there's somebody that you really admire, uh, a celebrity or a political figure uh, were to come in that, that has your respect, we might stand to our feet we might applaud, we might push forward to try to get a little bit closer. But if Jesus were to physically walk into this room, scripture tells us we would have one response, and that would be to fall flat on our faces because, because of the glory and the understanding of who Christ is. Now, I'm guessing that these magi, when they showed up at the house, they were probably thinking they... They were the important ones. They had the gifts. They they were coming with something. And then they see this child, and there was something about the child. We don't know what it is. I mean, in paintings and stuff, they they kind of put this halo or this glow around the child. I don't suspect that is what was going on. But there was something about the spirit being in that place that when they came in, it says they bowed. They fell down and worshipped him worshiped the child. I find that that's true for myself. Sometimes I have certain expectations coming into a situation and then there's something about the presence of God in a certain place that just causes me to set all those expectations aside and I just have to worship. I might physically sit down or take a different posture but but more than anything it's just a recognition of whoa, God is here. I'm not in charge. (laughs) Whatever I thought was the agenda for the day has changed. Herod has got something happening in his own backyard and he expends little energy. In fact, what he asks for is, uh, expresses his wants. He wants confirmation. He wants information. He's interested in in facts. Like, is this really happening? Is this a threat? Because then I'll deal with it. That's his MO, right? Herod had his epiphany. He had this information revealed to him, that this is what's going on. But that epiphany was not so much about where the child was or who the child was, but the epiphany was, where's your heart at, Herod? That's what was revealed. And similarly, we get in these magi that that have no reason to worship. What's revealed in their hearts is this attitude that causes them to recognize the child as the Messiah. So where is our gaze? Are we watchful or are we wary? What have we come for? Is it to worship? Is it really to, to submit ourselves and place God's priorities above ours? Or is it about our list of, of wants and things we need God to do for us? Jesus has come. It's something we look back on now as the epiphany. He's coming again, but as we observe his coming, his epiphany, Jesus's epiphany reveals something to us as well, if we look. What is my motivation in the relationship that I have with the Lord? Will you pray with me? Jesus, we come this morning to worship you. You know that we come with a mixture of motivations. There are things that we would very much desire for you to do on our behalf or for our families, for those we love and care about, for our world. We pray for peace. We pray for your love and grace to, to transcend our divisiveness. There's lots of things that we, we would like to see you bring to us. But Lord, this story of the Magi reminds us that, that we too are to bring a gift. And that gift is ourselves our motivations, if they're impure, Lord, reveal that to us so that we can confess that and move further into relationship with you. Lord, we want something beyond just the surface relationship with you where you're, you're healing, you're saving, you're restoring. Um, we would like something deeper that does demand something of us. because we understand from our own relationships with one another that, that that's a greater depth of a relationship, to have some reciprocation, to have some investment in one another. We know that you're invested in us. You sent your son Jesus, Father God. We pray that we would be invested as well. So hear our prayer, hear our hearts. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Our hymn of response is O Come All Ye Faithful. Please stand as you are able. O come